Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, I just had the awareness, I, I think, and the understanding and the acceptance from. From going to uh, from going to meetings on the twelve step program that I'm on, that my golden rule is that no matter what happens in my life, the worst thing I can do is pick up a drink or pick up a drug, because I may as well be just picking up petrol and throwing it on a fire that's already started. You know, it's the Keith Walsh podcast. It's essential, like your breakfast. It will get you up and going, learn some things you didn't know Yeah, it's the Keith Walsh Podcast It's the Keith Walsh Podcast Give you energy like buck fast And if your head's in a pickle or you're looking for a giggle It's the Keith Walsh Podcast Yes, yeah. good evening and welcome to the Keith Walsh Podcast It is Monday night, it is the... It's 20 past 9 It's the 3rd of... No, it's the 15th of the 3rd almost St. Patrick's Day. This is the Keith Walsh podcast, St. Patrick's Day special. There's nothing St. Patrick-y about it, or even well, the guest is special. Um, how are you doing? I am up in my little room upstairs, way way upstairs on the first floor of me gaff in Newbridge, recording this podcast. Uh, it's Monday night as always. Except when I record it on a Thursday night, then it's Thursday night. And, uh, yeah, the family are around and about somewhere. My son is in his room. Uh, just had a bit of a... Just had a bit of a barney about some pot noodle in the bedroom spilling. But I think things have calmed down. We got um, Kofi and Ann in on the phone. He had a chat. And uh, everything seems to be a bit better now. Back to school today, of course. All the primary school kids are back to school. That's it. So far, so good. One day in... Um, Today was great because no homework. And great news for me, no homework for the rest of the week. Tomorrow is law gloss, which means you uh, wear something green or sing American Idiot, whichever you prefer. And uh, next day is Paddy's Day, day off. Next day is Thursday, apparently no homework. Friday, no homework anyway. Clean sweep. One more week than the Easter holidays. Getting loving it. And then after Easter shirts, practically the summer. Grand. Lovely. So, and then we got the summer holidays and then that's it. Um, so it's good. It's good for me when there's no homework because they should just get rid of homework. Like they do enough all day. My daughter is in um, sixth year, as I mentioned. They're back. The only ones that aren't back, I think, are like first, second, third years. Um Fifth years and sixth years are back. My daughter uh, is working away. So they have tests now. There's no mocks, there's no leaving cert, but they have class tests. So you can have up to three class tests per subject. They have three. They're pushing it. 
proportionate. Um, so she's a little bit, there's a little bit of stress around that because obviously this takes on a new meaning. These class tests effectively become, you know, for want of a better word, the leaving cert. Um, but I'm not going to give out about it. I'm just going to be there supporting, helping. And actually she's decided she's going to sit the exam, the actual leaving cert exams as well in most subjects. So I think everybody's okay. My, my wife seems to be in good form, you know, happy wife, happy life. Isn't that what they say? And um, me, I'm doing good. I am doing good. I feel like I had something to say, but now I can't remember what it is. I, I don't want to keep the, um, I don't want to keep it too long. I want to keep the intro short because, well, first of all, this computer crashed a couple of times earlier. Uh, then I had to re-record the podcast. And, um, Sorry, I had to re-record the intro, and um, yeah, so hopefully this will be okay. Uh, before I get to my guest, I would like to say that uh, thank you very much if you're new to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends. Don't forget to give us a review, subscribe. Um, there is a donate to the podcast button in the description of the podcast, a supporter button if you want to throw us a few quid, you know, 500, 000, something small. Whatever you can manage, five or ten or anything, uh, that money will go towards us creating an animation for of the podcast for the podcast. So it's a bit selfish of us, but just so you know where the money's going. Also, uh, actually, I'll just say thanks to Acast is is part of the Acast Creator Network, and um, that's it. Yeah, I do want to talk about Reckless Skate Park in Wexford, which could be and is very close to closing down because of COVID. But I leave it till after uh, my my chat with my guest. My guest tonight is comedian, actor, dude, Willie Willa White. Um, I first met Willie, or Willa, uh, when I was working in radio with Bernard O'Shea. We were doing the breakfast show and Bernard knew Willa. They used to tour together a lot, play a lot of gigs together. And occasionally Bernard would ring him up and put him on the air and say, have a chat with Willa. And uh, he was always good crack, he was always funny. So uh, when I announced that my own one-man show got funding for a tour uh, a few days ago, Willa got in touch and, and he was it was great that he did. He was said he was delighted, it was great, blah de, blah He also had his own one-man show ready to go on tour. I think he won Best actor or the one man show one best sh- one man show at the Irish Times Theatre Awards last year he, 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 he'll explain it better than me um, which is quite phenomenal um, but he was ready to go on a, a national tour with his play and that all got cancelled I think he was going to Edinburgh and all that kind of stuff as well so so he's very similar situation um, but he's a guy he's he's done stand up he's been a performer he's but he's always kind of he's always worked as well like building whatever um he's a good guy he's he's seen it all the drugs the prison the death the destruction and somehow he he managed to to escape it survive it get beyond it and uh settle down within himself and yeah his is a story of hope and faith and Love and all those things. Um, very interesting guy. Very interesting story. So without further ado, 
let me introduce to you the guest for episode... I wish it was episode 72, that'd be much funnier. 79 of the Keith Walsh podcast. It is Willie Willa White. Enjoy. How's it going, man? Yeah, good. Good. Everything's all right, man. How are you? I'm, re- I'm really good. Um, thanks very much for uh, for coming on. It was good to good to hear from you. Yeah, you too, man. It's been a while. It's been a while. Um, where are you? You're in your gaff, are you? Yep. I'm in the gaff, yeah, yeah. Um, I was fortunate enough. I was out doing a little bit of work today and um, finished bright and early. So, uh, yeah, just um, just home and kind of chilling out, you know. That's it. What kind of work were you doing? I was delivering flowers for Mother's Day. Nice one. Yeah, because construction has kind of ceased. So, um and obviously, you know, all the entertainment industry is all at the stopping as well. So I, I, I kind of tried other uh, legal routes of getting work. So, um, <laughs> yeah, from a hardened criminal to a flower delivery guy, it's a bit of a fucking fall. But hey, do you know what I mean? You can't always come out smelling a roses, pardon the pun. <laughs> it's, a classic, uh, it's a classic scene from a movie, though, isn't it? Where the guy has the big box with the flowers and he, and he drops them. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. He, he, he drops them to reveal a big, massive yeah, yeah. Uzi, and he just sprays everybody with bullets. And he goes, take that. Yeah, it is. Take that. I was just thinking earlier on about the OE 108, the days when you and uh, Bernard was on the, the radio down the sticks. Yeah, we were on uh, iRadio, yeah. What a what a great uh, morning show. <laughs> it was brilliant. I used to listen to these all the time, you know. And there were certain areas where I'd go into them that I'd lose you, like, you know. And I'd be going, off oh, for fuck's sake. Uh-huh. But that's, that's the way it was. The frequency walked in some areas and other areas that it didn't. Is it still gone? Yeah, iRadio's still gone. Yeah, so we were on like I-105, 107, which was for the east. That's right, yeah. And uh, it wasn't for U-dubs. Um, and then they amalgamated. So there was the west, iRadio I west, iRadio east. and they, So there's one iRadio now that covers kind of half the country from, from Galway over to... Newbridge and bleeding into Dublin and uh, yeah, well you see I was I, I was living on the east coast. Do you know what I mean? I'm 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 Laytown like you're, you're <laughs> <laughs> I know the accents a bit of a uh, yeah, but that's 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 where I'm based like. Ah, are you you're so you're Meath? Yeah, yeah. Ah. I've been to Paradise, but I've never been to Meath. <laughs> do you remember that song? I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Have you uh, you you, well, you you come on the show a couple of times and uh, I I, feel I did like, yeah I, feel we, like I, we, I ran in a couple of times yeah yeah, yeah yeah I think we used to just randomly have you on uh, yeah 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 Bernard would probably say here's well I'll stick him on <laughs> no it was great I, lo- I love the show and it was come here it's just you and Bernard just bouncing off each other just having a bit of crack like you know yeah yeah it was good and come here they're the best radio shows when you. I mean, the likes of Dermot and Dave, you know, that have been together for so long. It's just, it's the rapport, isn't it? And it's the, you know, it's the it's the friendship and all that. And that's, they I mean, you, how can you call it walk on in somewhere with your mate and having a bit of crack and talking about stuff and having a laugh and putting on a few tunes, you know? Man, it's it's the dream. And uh, P, I see PJ's doing all right. He's moving to Nova now from... He's, uh, yeah, he's gone to Nova. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it, The cat's kind of been out of the bag a little while, but I think everyone's been keeping the lid on it until he... Kind of let the lid off, you know. 
Well, that's great. Uh, I think they're all, are they owned by the same company? I think so. I think Nova and Classic Hits, so they're obviously changing up, doing a swap switcheroo. I think Colm and Lucy are going to Classic Classic Hits and the, the lads are doing Nova. So, um, yeah, obviously they've decided. I think they're owned by the same company and then kind of the same. I think a guy from... One of the same umbrella, Luke, is it? I think a guy who used to run 104 went in there and he's kind of making some changes. Uh so, so good things to come from those two radio stations, I'd imagine. Roy, Roy. Um, so listen, we, we, I, I want to talk to you about lockdown and all that kind of stuff and the closing of the gigs and the theatres and all that. But for people that don't know you, we're going to go right back, Willa. We're going to go right back. This is, this is like, back. this is like <laughs> a- Eamon Andrews with the red. We're going to go way back. We're going way back. <laughs> there's a podcast I listen to, there's a thing. I, Podcast listening, and they talk about going going in the way back the the way back machine, and they get into this machine and they pretend they're going back in time. Um, but we don't we don't need to get into the way back machine. What were you doing before? And maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you got into comedy, and then how did you get your break, as it were, in into comedy? Because I think there was a television show involved. I let you tell it though, if you can yeah. remember. Can you remember? Yeah, you did. So do you want to know what I was doing like just before I got into comedy? Or do you want to know what I was doing like way back? Whatever. whatever yeah, like where did you come from? What did you tell us? Yeah, well, come here. Right, your background. We, yeah, well, I have, a, I have a picture there and... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> my, sh- my background is shit now. <laughs> tell us about your background. This picture of Ikea. Uh, now, um, I, I came from... Uh, I originally grew up in Ballymun, but I, when I was born in the Kilm on the 17th of June in 1971, I was um, living in Mount Talent Avenue on the south side. And then we moved and we got a little flat in a place called Crampton Buildings, which is in the heart of Temple Bar, believe it or not. And then we moved from there out to Ballymun. Uh, we moved to 15 Shangan Avenue. And uh, my mom said there was a ghost in 15 Shangan Avenue that he used to go up, he used to flush the chain on the toilet pot during the night. And I thought my mom was taking the piss, you know, but my dad actually confirmed that there was, there was somebody there. So we we moved out of that flat and back into town again. And then we moved back out into 16 Shangan Avenue. So grown, I, I grew up in Ballymun and went to school in Ballymun uh, as a young, as a young lad. And, Two of us in the family, just just me and my sister, and she was six years older. It's mad because six years seemed to have a, a, a the six years between my mom and my dad. There's six years between me and my sister. There's six years between my two kids, and there's six years between uh, me and my ex partner. And the last prison sentence I got uh, five and a half years. So. Uh, <laughs> Thank God I wasn't six. They um, should have. They should have made them. They should have made them keep you in for another six months. <laughs> it's been a great story, just around her off. Um, yeah. So I, I grew up in Ballymun, and 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 come here outside of the house, everything seemed kind of normal. And um, you know, my father had a good job, mother had a good job, but there was, there was a lot of um, there was a lot of stuff that went on. Our homie father was a really heavy drinker. And there was a lot of violence in the house. And growing up as a kid, it was um, it was very, very frightening. It was a, I remember my childhood 
kind of been really built around fear. The foundation of my childhood would have been fear-based, you know, especially with my dad coming home from the pub late at night and, uh, you know, just waiting for the key to turn in the door, kind of knowing what was going to happen. So um, that that was the way it was. Like, But when I look, when I look back, um, I'm kind of jumping forward a bit. My father passed away in... 2016 it was actually his anniversary yesterday believe it or not he was he was five years dead yesterday and i grew up with this man that i genuinely had a hatred for and a hate for and when i came into recovery um nearly 20 years ago because i, I, I you know I, I had a bad bad drug problem and a bad drink problem when i come into recovery i learned to understand this man and I kind of delved into his past and I found out what it was like for him growing up in the household that he grew up in, uh, where there was 16 kids um, and a mother and father in a two bedroom flat. And I learned about my grandfather who wasn't the nicest of a man, would be probably the nicest way to put it. And, and what he endured and what he went through growing up. And when I, when I done that, um, look, I, I spoke to my dad's family members and they, they kind of gave me a bit of background as well. I really understand that my father, where he came from, didn't do such a bad job with us and that there was a lot of anger and there was a lot of underlying issues from his childhood that, you know, that probably he could only deal with through drink and, and, and whatever. Like, so I, I understood that. So, yeah, so, I, I, you know, I went to school, left school with no education. I was always kind of the class clown in school, you know, tried to be a funny kind of guy. I went to live in London when I was 16. With that stage, I was using drugs. Um, went over to London and, and, and the rave scene was out in London and it was a great time to go away. And there was loads of us over there. And, and you know, just just that whole thing, you know, you, I was answering to nobody but myself, like, you know. Um, but that all went pee tongue after a while, and I ended up in a psychiatric hospital over in London. I took me auntie and a friend who just called down for a cup of tea and me cousin hostage in a, in a, in a flat, in their flat for, a, for, for three days. I was suffering with drug psychosis and I got um, pleaded insane in, in the courts in Wood Green and I ended up in a psychiatric unit for nearly seven months where I was very frightened, very scared, didn't know what was going to happen with my life, thought I was there for the rest of my life. And I, I didn't really know, I, I knew to some extent what was going on, but I didn't really know what was going on, if that makes any sense. I was on a lot of medication, uh, daily doses of medication. I was on an, an injection of Haldol once a week. And um, I thought there was no hope for me. I thought that this is where I was going to be for the rest of my days. And eventually I got out. My sister said she'd take care of me. My mother and father had split up and I went back to Dublin and my mother went to London. When I was in hospital, she moved to London and she stayed in London. And I went home and, and, and stayed with my sister and she detoxed me off the tablets over about a year and a half. And then I proceeded to do the same thing again and I ended up in another psychiatric hospital, I ended up in Dundrum, and then I ended up in, from Dundrum, I ended up in Vincent's on the Richmond Road. So, um, a lot of psychiatric history and a lot of troubles as a young man. I could never really see what what the problem was or, or what the issue was. I, I, I'd have never said it was drugs, like, you know. If anything, I'd have just said it was kind of bad luck. 
if, if anything. And so I, I kind of never took LSD after that uh, tour time round. And then my years and kind of progressed. And, and I, I got into I got into taking heroin and, and, and into a lot of drinking. And, and with that came all the prison sentences and, and all the stuff that I thought I'd never do. I used intravenously and I ended up homeless on the streets. I ended up begging on the streets. Then I ended up going to London on the run because I was in trouble with the police for a drugs charge. Um, went over to stay with my mother and was in my mother's for a while and started using drugs over there, started smoking crack and my partner came over and it was just a, it was just a, my life was just a disaster mentally, physically and spiritually. I was bankrupt. I, I couldn't make heads and my tails of what was going on in my life. And eventually I got sent home from London. I got extradited. I was, I was a cop with the police and I was sent home and I got a, a five and a half year sentence with a review of my sentence after three and a half years. <clears throat> for possession with intent to supply a class A drug. And um, I was clean when I come home from prison, uh, in, in, in Brixton prison, which was mad. But I went back into Mountjoy prison and monkey see, monkey do. And I ended up back taking drugs again. And it was just a roller coaster of madness all over again. Um, when I started I start going to these meetings inside, these 12 step meetings and a mate of mine said, look, they're great. He says, they give out free cigarettes. And so we went up and I didn't know what was going on. And uh, the, the days I went up, I just kind of listened and I was a little bit open-minded. And then when you were prison officer and I, and I went to him and I asked him for help. Um, I says, listen, I, I, I need a bit of help. I kind of half knew this guy. Um, my ex-partner was babysitting his kids. He lived around the corner from her. And um he says, right, okay, what do you want to do? I says, look, I, I need to detox and I need to get myself together. I says, I'm, I'm due up on a review in about a year. He says, and I need to sharpen my pencil and I, and, I need, and I need to get the fuck out of here and I need not to come back because all the years that I've been in prison and I've been in prison a good few times, probably all in all, probably about seven or eight years in, in incarcerated over my time of using drugs. And every time I went to prison, it was drug-related, Keith, you know? So, um. I went to the detox unit and I got into the detox unit and I detoxed and then I went to the the training unit in Glengareth Parade, which is around the corner from Mount Joy, and it's a it's a kind of bit more laid back and it's drug free. Um not that they give you free drugs in there, like but it's it's drug free in the sense that you've got to have clean urines and you've got to kind of adhere to the rules and you know, and it was the first time in a long time that I just kind of I, I started coming around to myself um I done a couple of plays in there. I done the play on the stairs. Uh, I played flute or good, and just kind of start getting me sense of humour back and start feeling a bit better about myself. And kept going to meetings, and eventually I got out. And um, after the three and a, three and a half years, and I, I after about six months, um, I met Des. I met Des Bishop. And um, I was at a, a, a kind of a thing that Des was at, like, and and I was up there on a raffle as the MC at the raffle. A mate of mine says, go on up and do the raffle. We'll have a bit of laugh. So Des approached me and I was telling him about my story. So initially what happened, <laughs> which is mad, is that the whole 
joining the HUD program was meant to be about me on my own first. So it was about to be about this guy who got out of prison, who was a former drug addict and former criminal, obviously. Um, and he's going to embark on the world of stand-up comedy. And I've got to say, the idea was very, very good and the whole lot, but I had a big long think about it and I just decided, no, it's not for me. Like, So um, I, I said why, to Des... Why, why do you think you decided that? Because uh, a couple of things, mainly number one was my my family. I had a young daughter at the time and uh, and my war colleagues. I didn't want people to know because I was still carrying the guilt and the shame of of being using drugs and the stuff that I'd done in my past. And I kind of, I wanted to put that stuff to bed and I, di I didn't want to bring it back up. I wasn't ready to bring it back up because I hadn't dealt with it myself. And, you know, I passed enough judgment on myself, Keith, that I didn't want other people to judge me. And I knew that with the program, with Des's profile, that I'd have ended up, you know, I'd have ended up on, on all the radio stations and I'd have ended up on the Late Late Show, more than likely. And I'd have got this, I'd have been branded and I'd have got this stigma as the, you know, ex-heroin addict comedian, like. Mm -hmm. And that would have fizzled out fairly, fairly quick. And so I opted not to do it. And it was one of the biggest and one of the best decisions that I, that I ever made in my life was, was, was not to take part in the program. And I said it to Des and, and Des was like, right, man, you know. And so I said, look, if anything else ever comes up, I says, give us a shout. I said, you know, but I, I said, I just, I just can't do this. I says, I've got, I've got too much to lose here, I says. And I said it to Des, I said, look, you've, you've got your career, I says, and you're, you're up and you're doing your thing. I says, but this isn't the way I want to make me entrance into, you know, the world of stand-up, if that is what happens, you know. So a couple of years later, the Join the Hood thing came out. Um, Des was doing this program, you know, about being in, you know, disadvantaged areas. And we were the pilot. We were Bally Moon and we, myself and Eric Lawler. There was, there was a gang that was in it and he came out and basically it was like workshops of teaching guys how to do stand-up comedy from the area in Ballymun, showing a bit about the area. And then at the end of it, you get up in a hall somewhere in front of the local community and your family and you do your bit of stand-up. So that's kind of where my stand-up career, so to speak, would have started. And Des, I have to say, was very, very good to us. When we got established and when we got about 10 minutes of material, Des would take us on his tour with him. You know, so we got we got the creme of the creme. We got to play, like, Cork Opera House, and we got to play, you know, Vicar Street, and we got to play um, the Marquee in Cork in front of two and a half, three thousand people, like, stuffed out. You know, we kind of leapfrogged, I suppose, in a sense, you know, of, of doing this, now, Des, Des was paying us, but we were far from yet getting paid gigs. So me, myself and Eric used to travel up and down the country doing gigs. And I remember the first time we got paid outside the Half Moon Theatre in Cork. Your man gave us 50 quid between us. And you'd swear we got seven numbers on the lotto. I was breakdancing in a puddle out the back of the venue. And I was like, we've hit the big time, like, you know. <laughs> and... um. And that was that was our card then, because when people were booking us, we were saying, yeah, well, we got paid down in Cork. Like. So people then started paying us, you know. So it was great. It was it, it was brilliant. They kind of cut our teeth. And then we were doing, 
you know, we started getting slots in the international club and then we were doing Cuba down in Galway and we'd be going to Belfast through the Empire. And, you know, we went to Edinburgh and we'd done a couple of gigs in Edinburgh and it was just, it, it was amazing. And we, you know, started meeting all these amazing people and really nice people. And yeah, it, it kind of just catapulted from there. You know, we just got, you know, even the likes of Bernard, I met Bernard along the way. Like, and it's mad when I look back at Bernard's life how it was when he don't stand up to how his life is now. Like, it's just a complete... But there's one thing I'll always say about Bernard, and I'm not blowing smoke up his arse, but, I mean, Bernard, like yourself, is just a workhorse. He, he walks, he walks hard. You know, it's, it's it didn't just land on his lap. Like, Bernard, you know, done the slog and done his apprenticeship as a comedian and done all the shitty gigs and done the difficult gigs and and just kept walking and... and, and, and you know, got got to where he is, and I've I've got the utmost respect for Bernard and for anybody that that does stuff like that. You know, so um, that's kind of where where my my comedy uh, career would would have started, and that probably about fifteen years ago. Um, and I still, you know, I, I, I love doing it. I always kind of found that it was me calling. You know, and. and and I'm, the, a lot of the lads that I met along the way were, were really, really good. I mean, you know, the big names like Tommy Tiernan and PJ Gallagher and Jason Bourne, who'd be one of me really, really close friends, um, were just really nice and very helpful. And, you know, and then I'd other stuff going on in my family. I'd, you know, my sister, um, my only sister, got diagnosed with cancer. And um, she was like my mother and father through my life, you know, she was... She was always there for me and she was she was she was me rock like and she was always behind me in my recovery and she just I felt as if she just propped me up all the time. In the desperate I remember she was on a program with Paddy O'Gorman. I don't know if you remember Paddy O'Gorman. Mm, he used yeah. to have a program called My Kind of People. And he went into Bally once and he interviewed my sister. And my sister spoke about me. And I was on the run in London at the time and I was strung out on crack. I was like I probably had the resemblance of a traveller's greyhound on hunger strike with a tracksuit on, you know, and I was really, really sick. And she spoke about me and he said, well, why don't you just, you know, why don't you just get rid of him? Like, and she says, I can't because I love him. Like, you know, and I really, that, that stuff really hit me, you know, when I got clean and I watched it and she was always there for me. And she, she passed away in, um, 2010, um, the 17th of October, a quarter past four of a Sunday afternoon. And I'll never forget it. I, I was broken hearted. I, I, it was like a piece of me was just caught out and thrown, thrown into the gutter. And um, I miss her terrible. I really, really do. You know, she was, she was everything I had in my life at the time. And, and it was crazy. All the times that she helped me in my life, she was asking me to help her in the hospice down in St. Francis. And, and I couldn't do anything for her. And I just, felt so powerless and I felt so I felt so angry you know and um yeah it was it, it was a, it was a horrible time but I was present and I was able to you know organize the funeral and and, and give a dig out and all that, that that kind of stuff and she two sons and, and just try to play a part in their life and it was just a crazy time eh, Keith um how do you how do you cope when because I mean obviously the drink and the drugs, that's that's your way of dealing with the trauma you were dealing with. And it's sedative, yeah. 
um, and escaping from your, your from your own head. That's that's what we do. That's what people do. Um, yeah. So when stuff like that comes up, like when your sister, I'm, I'm sorry to hear it. And I know it was a long time ago, but these memories are still yeah. fresh. When she passes away, like, how do you keep it together? How do you stay on that? How do you stay so focused? Um, you know, because that's the type of thing that you'd imagine someone would go, what's the fucking point? You know what I mean? Yeah, I just had the awareness, I, I think, and the understanding and the acceptance from from going to uh, from going to meetings on the 12-step program that I'm on that my golden rule is that no matter what happens in my life, the worst thing I can do is pick up a drink or pick up a drug. Because I may as well be just picking up petrol and throwing her on a fire that's already started, you know? So it doesn't do me any good. And, and I mean, a lot of the lads that I hang around with are drug free and they, and they gave me a dig out and they helped me. And it's mad when my sister was really, really ill, she, you know, I, she used to say to me, keep going and doing, you know, go and keep doing your gigs. And, 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 and it was the only escape I actually got away from my head is when I went on stage and took a microphone out of the stand and start talking shit for the next 20 minutes or a half an hour. I forgot about everything that was going on. It was like me drug. It was like the microphone and the audience and the laughter and the smiling. And it's crazy because you're up on stage and people are going, oh, he's great crack. And they don't realize that I've got a sister in a hospice up the road, 20 minutes that's dying of cancer, like, you know? And um, and that's that's what I've done. It was the only thing. And, it, and the comedy kind of just suppressed what was going on for a half an hour and then... After that, you're kind of back to normal. It's usually finished, and, and I'd, I'd drive up to the hospice late at night, and we'd sit there, and we'd watch the, the X Factor, and I'd get her a curry or whatever. And I was actually just visual, visualizing the other day, me and my mom and, and my sister were sitting in the courtyard out the back of the hospice, and she was in a wheelchair at this time. And I was just lying on her lap, and I was just unconsolable. And um, she was... Um, Take your time, man. She was rubbing my head and she was telling me it was going to be all right, you know? And um, I was I was a broken man. I really, really was, you know? And um, But look, she the inevitable was to happen. She she passed away and anyway, she was 44. She died of cervical cancer. And um, yeah, as I said, a, a part of me died, you know, that day and but life goes on, you know, life goes on, you move on, you, you, you learn to accept, you learn to understand. Um, she's, she's always with me, I think, I think about her every day. She, she was such a big part of my life, you know, she really was. She was my mother and my father rolled into one, you know, without, without a shadow of a doubt. And then from 2010, you know, other things happened in my life, you know, with another child. She was born with a condition called gastroschisis. Or, or, or intestines was outside her stomach and uh, she was very sick and nearly passed away and she's told in now and uh, she's downstairs and she's she's a, she's a great kid and then I was in a relationship for 22 years and that broke up and um that was that was devastating as well but I mean everything that I find that's happened in my life Keith any disasters that has happened in my life when I think it's actually a disaster there's only a chapter closing for something else to happen, like, you know. So it's kind of a cloud, a silver lining, you know, a cloud with silver lining. And I'm with a beautiful girl at the moment now. 
um, <clears throat> over the last five years, and I've I've never genuinely and sincerely been happier in, in, in my relationship and, and in myself. Things have just evolved and things things have moved on and, and life goes on. You can't you can't stop time and you can't delve into the past and live in anger and live in resentment because I think them things just build up a cancer inside yourself, you know. I just, I, as a matter of fact, I was driving past the yard today for a guy that I used to walk for. And um, me and him had a difference of opinion there over a year ago. And, and, and I've got to own my part and what happened in it. And, and this is what, you know, what recovery has, has given to me. That Even though it took me a year to kind of own my own part, and there was a bit of resentment there. And I just went, you know what? I need to nip this in the bud, like, so I rang him and I just said, listen, I said, I'm just passing by the yard. He says, and I just want to tell you, I says, that stuff that happened about a year ago, I says, I'm holding my hands up and I apologize for my part in it. I says, and I don't want to have any resentment or any anger towards you. I says, you were a good friend of mine. I says, and I'm hoping that we can clean the slate and we can start afresh. And he went, you know what? He says, I really appreciate that you've called me. He says, and fair play to you. He says, it takes a real man to do something like that. He says, because I was never going to ring you. You know, and I just went, great, that's brilliant. So, yeah, Keith, it's, 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 it's been an amazing journey. It really, really has. I mean, the people I've met, I, me- I remember one day, I don't mean to be dropping a lot of names, I remember one day having lunch with Eddie Izzard and John Bishop over in Liverpool. And I'm kind of sitting there saying to myself, in a mad way, I says, here's a guy who was homeless on the streets, you know, probably 12 or 15 years ago at the time it was. And who lived in a car and who tapped money off people and, you know, who was basically broken. And I'm now sitting down with these two fellas who are megastars in the show business world of comedy. And I'm hitting, sitting here holding a conversation with the two of them, you know, with a knife and fork in my hand and a, a glass of Diet Coke in front of me. And we're having a bit of crack and I stay in John Bishop's house that night and it's just like, I'm like, Jesus, like how blessed am I? And then I'm back in a building site on Monday morning with two scaffolding boards on my shoulder, kind of going, you know, whatever. But I've come here, you know, I can honestly say, Keith, that if, if we, if we passed away tomorrow, what I've done in the last 20 years with me, life has been amazing. And I mean, the play that I kind of touched on with you, we don't know. I was fortunate enough to meet these two guys. They're out of a production company called a theatre company called Broken Talkers, and they do very real stuff. None of it is fiction. So they done um, a play called The Blue Boy, which was basically about the Undertaker and Leatherfrack in in when the the industrial skills was on. Then they, you know, they, they a lot of the stuff that they do was kind of very close to the bone. Um, but they were doing a piece about criminals and they had a, a professor of criminology, a lovely lady who was very fortunate enough to meet and is actually a friend of mine now. She's a professor called uh, Dr. Catherine Cox. She won a big award the other day and they got her on board and then they went into Mount Joy and they start, they start interviewing prisoners that were doing life sentences and were asking them about the conditions inside in Mount Joy and they were asking them, you know, you know what you know what your mental health is like and so they done that for 15 months and then they they needed somebody to play the part of the play that they were doing it was initially meant, meant to be a one-man play 
So they asked the music teacher in Mount Joey, who was a guy called Jerry Hendrix, um, no relative of Jimmy. And <laughs> they asked him, they said, who would you recommend off the top of your head? He says, we're looking for someone to do a one-man play. He said, he said, without a shadow of a doubt, he says, there's a guy that was in here. He said, his name is Willie White. He says, he's the man that he says to play that part. He says, definitely. So the guy's got in touch with me on Twitter, funnily enough. And he said, listen, uh, my name is Phelan Cannon. I'm part of two guys. Another guy called Gary Keegan from Broken Talkers. We're doing this play. And it's about mental health in prison. And, you know, we believe you have a bit of a story. And would you like to come in and see us? And I said, yeah, I'd love to know. I thought when I went in, they'd have the script written and, you know, we just kind of take it from that. But it wasn't. So what, what basically happened was I went in and I started speaking. I said I'd love to do the, the, the piece. So we started taking my stories and putting them all together. And it was basically meant to be me talking back to a voice, the storm and kind of, you know, machine talking back to myself. And then... It wasn't kind of walking. So Gary says, let me in to read, which is one of the guys. So Phelan says, Gary's going to read. Is that okay? And I says, Grant. And it just seemed to walk an awful lot better with Gary. So Gary ended up coming into the play, which walked a treat because Gary, the way the play walked out was is that Gary was devil's advocate in a way that he was an ex-victim of crime in London. He'd been mugged in London a good few years ago. So he was telling his part of being an ex-victim of crime. And I was an ex-criminal with a with a, you know with prison history. I've been in prison. And I told my story and kind of delved into prisoners' rights and you know, you know, basically telling people in, in, in more sense than one, not ramming it down their throat. That people that are locked up in prison aren't animals like. And you'll understand why you see me in a gorilla suit for nearly an hour and 15 minutes for most of the play. Um, and that that's kind of it. I'm basically saying to people, you know, you hear people on these talk cho- shows, you know, uh, you know, Joe Duffy or Noel Boyle and all, yeah, Joe, yeah, it's a, you know, it's a holiday camp. It's it's fucking not a holiday camp. And as I say in the play, I don't know any holiday camps. I mean, in Mosny, they don't have you pissing in a fucking tub. They don't have you seeing your family once a week. They don't have you getting locked up at half past seven in the evening. So we were just kind of putting a piece across, you know, about, about what it was. And the play, it was a brilliant, brilliant play. It was a great piece. We ended up going to Edinburgh for a couple of weeks. With it. We went around a few venues in Dublin. And then we done the Dublin Fringe Festival. And we went to the awards at the Dublin Fringe Festival. And I've got to be honest, I genuinely and sincerely from the bottom of my heart never thought that I'd win best performer at the Dublin Fringe Festival. There were 600 people. Um, it was it was very mind-blowing. It was very humbling. It was very emotional when I got up to speak because I spoke for the people that are still strung out on drugs and for the people that are still in a hopeless situation on the streets and people that suffer with mental health that look at, there is a way out. If I can come from where I'm after coming from and turn my life around and get to the place where I'm at at the moment, I'm no different than anybody else. And I mean, you, you, you've just really got to want to be, you know, just to have enough of, 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 of living the life that you're living. So we won Best Production on that night. I won Best Performer. And then we won the Irish Times um, Best Production Award. So we, we've got loads of stuff going on. And then, you know, pre-COVID, we were booked in to go to 
the Paris Theatre Festival. We were booked in to go to the Norwegian Theatre Festival, where it's bright 24 hours a day. Uh, the lads have been to it before. We were booked to go to Australia. We were booked to go to New York. We were booked to do an Irish tour. We'd loads of stuff done. But look at this all happened, and, and it's kind of been kicked under underneath us. And you know what? I'm not kind of going, oh, it's terrible. Because, I mean, everybody in the entertainment industry is suffering because of this. So it's not a personal thing on me. I mean, I'm thinking of all the techies. I'm thinking of all the sound guys. I'm thinking of all the stage managers. I'm thinking of the bar staff. I'm thinking of the cleaners. I'm thinking of all these people at the moment who their living and their livelihood and their way of putting bread on the table has been realistically snatched away from them. And they've suffered the worst from anything that's going on. I mean, I know retail is in a bit of a, di a dilemma at the moment and, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hot and low. I mean, but you can get online and you can order a pair of trainers online. I mean, it's, you can't get online and order a stand-up comedian or a live gig or live atmosphere. Of I mean, you know yourself, you've been to Electric Picnic, you've been to the festivals, you've played at these great venues and you've done all this stuff. And it's, it's not, as I said, take the artist's of it. It's everybody else that makes these venues happen and the magic happen and that are the ingredients and the backbone to all these theatres and all these venues around the country that are really, really, really taking the hammer. And I really think that the government should be doing an awful lot more for them. And they're not key. Yeah. I mean, uh, Niall Brezzi Brez, made the point that the, the, the line he said was first to close, last to open, you know. And there's going to be a lot of people... And you'll know well, and you'll probably be speaking to some of them a lot. Like a lot of them will suffer with their mental health because of this. It'll take, it won't, it's not like as soon as lockdown is over, someone can flick a switch and everyone's just going to be, you know, suddenly there's going to be a sound man available. Like I, I was talking to somebody about this before, like, well, the sound man has sold his equipment because he had to pay his rent. The guitarist yeah. has sold his guitar because he couldn't eat and he had to like it's not just gonna it's not just flick a switch and get everybody back because no so 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 when we when we're looking forward to going to the pubs and going to the gigs and going to the whatever we better not be expecting that to just like a, like a light switch that's not going to happen because it's going to take these people a long time to recover from what's happened to them and get back on their feet and get to the point where they can start entertaining other people yeah you know, but i mean even financial institutions keith I mean, you think of a sound man or someone from them, you know, from that, that walk in that area, going in to look for a loan off a bank or going into, they're, they're just going to go, no, you're, you're high risk. Like, mm. like if, if anything happens again or, or, or everything turns upside down, I mean, they're, they're left basically, you know, holding the baby, so to speak, you know. You always worked though, didn't you, Willa? Like you didn't. I was I, very, I, yeah, I, you know, I get, yeah, I did. I was very, very fortunate in that sense. I gave it a break for about nine months. And I said, I'll go all in and I'll give it a go. And I was traveling to the UK and I was doing gigs and jonglers and, you know, different venues around the UK. And I just found that with a young family, it was very, very difficult to do. So my safety net for me, luckily enough, and, and, and I'm really, really grateful for it, was that I had a day job. You know, it's like people said, don't don't give her up just yet, you know? Yeah, well, you're saying, <laughs> so, I'll never, so, I can't give up the day job. <laughs> I can't afford to give it up. But yeah, so I, I have I have been very very lucky in that sense. Um, but you say lucky, really, like you know, you've but you've always like that. You, you figured to me looking at you and listening to you talking, you've always figured out a way. You know, you've always been thinking. I mean, obviously, yeah. 
it's obviously you're you're dealing with your traumas. You're trying to escape from your own head, but at the same time, you're you're probably always thinking, how do I get out of this? How do and looking for looking for the way out, you know. And the way out was yeah. was the twelve step program or talking to that guy in Mount Joy and saying, uh, knowing that he was the guy that was that was going to help you, you know, because when you're in that situation and when you're homeless, when you're living in London, when you don't have, you know, when you've got drug issues and you're, and you're trying to find money to buy drugs, you, you're not meeting yeah. people. You're not meeting people that are going to help you. No, no, you're, 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 de- you're definitely not. Come here. Do you know what, Keith? The people that I've met in my life and the situations I've been in in my life, have defined that the per- the person that I am today, like, yeah. and I don't kind of look back now and kind of you know, oh poor me, or it's not, it's not about that. If, but no, if, it's not about that. It's about because you were looking for those people, and like you were ready, you were ready to be helped. You just needed to find the right people. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. It's, and that's all anybody ever. That's all anybody needs is to find the right person to help them to show a bit of faith and go look. Let's try this. I think that I think the toughest thing that any person will do in their life is ask for help. Yeah. I think it's the hardest thing to actually go up and, and put your pride aside and just say, listen, please, help. I, I need a bit of help. Because, I mean, a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of people in life, you know, especially, you know, people that have took their own life and, and God bless them and everyone belong to them. I think if they had have had the ability to be able to put aside what was going on in their head and just go up to someone and say, please give, give me a dig out like you know maybe there would be an awful lot more people still alive you know and, and it's 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 so hard to do but you know what it's 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 so beneficial and there's nothing wrong with asking for help there really but it, isn't but it all ties in because you so trauma gets passed on from generation to generation until yes, it until it, un, until it hits a person who goes i'm going to try and change this and you're that person in your yeah. family you're the person yes that's not going to pass the trauma on, you know, or, or whatever you do, it'll be less, you know, you, do you know what I mean? You, you've, you've looked, you've, you've looked to, to better, to look at your mental health, to not pass the trauma on and it happens, but the, it's the trauma comes from men. A lot of the time and women frustrated because down through the generations, they're told not to ask for help. They're told to man up. They're told to get on with yeah. it. They're told nobody yeah. wants to hear your problems. You need to just deal with this situation on your own. And it's that thing that what happens behind closed doors in your own house when your dad is drinking too much or your mother is violent or whatever. It's domestic abuse. And all yeah. that stays behind closed doors because no one else wants to hear about it. And it's just, it, it's all part of the trauma. And it, it's, so, the, so the best thing for anybody to do is ask for help and to talk and to be honest and to be what you've all, what you've always done, what you decided to do at some point is be vulnerable and go, look, I need help here, you know? Yeah, I just, do, do you know what? When I, when I look back at where my life was, and, I, and I've got to honestly say to you, Keith Roy, it's not about material things in life for me. Roy, it genuinely isn't. Come here, look, look yourself. I've got nice clothes in the wardrobe. I've, you know, I've food in the fridge. I've, you know, I drive a nice car and, and all that stuff. And I have a nice house. And But I genuinely would rather have nothing and be okay upstairs than have every, it's, it's like a fella said to me once, he says, there's no point in being Gucci on the outside and Oxfam on the inside. I need to find a balance in my life where I can really appreciate what I have. And, and, and it's like, 
it's like that song, like the best things in life are free. Like they really, really are. Like Janet Jackson hit the fucking nail on the head. Like, I mean, the unconditional love I have, you know, from, from my family, from my kids, from my granddaughter, from my daughter downstairs, from my partner. And the way I'm just, you know, I, I, I am the total opposite of the person that I was 20 odd years ago. Like, is that, is, is that I'm loving, I'm caring, I'm kind, I'm considerate. I'll, I'll do anyone a good tone if I can. If someone's trying to get themselves clean, I'll ring them up and make sure they're all right and I'll, I'll pick them up. And I'm not blowing smoke with me on arse, but all I'm saying is that I wouldn't have done that stuff years ago. If I, if I was doing something for someone, I always wanted something in return. There always had to be a payback for me. Do you know what I mean? Where now, there's not like, I find that there's an awful lot, there's, there's a hundred times more in giving than there is receiving. Mm. You know, I, 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 I find that. And it takes me away from myself as well. You know, sometimes I still find it hard to believe, you know, when I look at myself in the mirror and I kind of go, it's crazy where, where I've come from. And I, and I have a video clipping me from years ago when I'd done a, a thing in Mount Joy where they, where they shot this thing and I was saying about that I'd like to get clean. And I, and I was in a really, really bad way in my life. And I, and I didn't know what way my life was going to pan out. But you know what, Keith, the gratitude that I have today for, for as I says, the things in my life that don't cost a penny. I mean, just, just being able to go out on, on, on my bike for a cycle or just going for a walk on the beach. I've been able, you know, I went over and climbed Snowden and climbed um, Ben Nevis and go away with a walking group out of Ballymoon. I call the Ballymoon Explorers and it's nothing fancy. We go to an old cheap hostel. There's a gang of us. It's an open invitation some people are in recovery, some people aren't in recovery, and it's just a really, really great bunch of people that's not looking for anything, that aren't, you know, measuring Mickey's, as I say, you know, seeing what you have and what I have. We're all just there for the one thing. We want to go away, have a bit of laugh, have a bit of crack, and, and just, you know, just enjoy life. Like, you know, there's so much more to life than just looking at a phone or looking at a, at a screen. And, and the kids today, just, they don't understand that, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, that's great. So what are they call the Ballymun Explorers? Explorers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. It's great. And you know what? They're a great bunch of people. And it's mad. It's not a closed group. If anyone's into doing a bit of hill walking or anyone wants to come away for the weekend, we meet up early in the morning of a Friday morning and we just head off and we come back of a Sunday evening. And it's it's great crack. It's just, it's a, it's a brilliant bunch of people and, you know, it's, it's, it's there for anyone that wants to do it. Like, you know, we're not a, you know, we're not a, a club or, or anything, so to speak. Like, if you wanted to come in on the group, we'd just add you and I just get the admin to put your phone number on and we post up positive stuff. There's nothing negative goes up on the WhatsApp. Like, you know, people are getting shot in a dark room out in Venezuela or anything like that. There's none of, none of that stuff. It's just good life stuff, you know. Feeling awesome. good as too much negativity in the world like you know yeah, yeah. i've been in i'm in a recovery whatsapp group as well and it's just all positive stuff i just i just you know negativity and and you know all that stuff I, i've done i've done enough of it and i've had enough of it I, I like to be around positive people and i like to do positive things i've i put on a little bit of weight as of late um and um like when, when my sister died in 2010 I went and done the Gale Force West in 2011. I lost about three and a half stone and um, I raised over six grand for the hospice down in, in St. Francis, down in, in 
in Rohini. And I proceeded to do that for a few years and I got really fit. And then um, over the last few years, I kind of got a little bit comfortable in my skin and a bit lazy, so to speak, and just, you know, kind of put back on the weight again. So at the minute, I, um, I have a guy around the corner, he's a personal trainer, and I said, I need to be held accountable for what I'm doing. So I don't like to lose money. I think there's a bloodline in my family where probably someone I'm from Cavan. So I gave him a few quid. I paid him in advance. I said, there's the money for six sessions twice a week. And I'm going to do stuff myself twice a week and try to get myself back on track and start eating a little bit healthy. So I'm hooking in with him at the minute and, and I'm just trying to get back out and just try to enjoy life. I mean, it's come here at dark times, Keith. Yeah, you know, they, they, are, they yeah. really, they just, you need to be connected with people and, you know, I try to stay away from the news and I try to stay away from the statistics and the numbers and there's this many and there's that many. And I strongly hold the government accountable for what happened. I think when this whole thing happened, they should have shut the whole country down. I think the only thing they should have let into the country was food supplies and medical supplies. Mm. And I think every country should have done it. But come here, we were welcoming people in on caravans from the UK and different, ah, come in, Grand, you know, like, yeah, no, nah, no, look, we're behind the price, you know, yeah. it's, it's a year in and we're kind of still in this position, so I don't know what's going to happen, really. Well, it's definitely dragging on for a lot longer than you you feel like we, we, we were able for, and it's getting to like it's getting to crisis point at this stage, and people, you know, people need to get back out and back working. And but do you find do you find you're better, like, do you find people like you're a positive, like, you've you've been through what you've been through, you've got your own set of presume you've got your own set of things that you do or do you still follow the 12-step program Are you still going to meetings yes. and that kind of stuff yes so you, have, so you have yeah. your own you have your own coping mechanism do you find you can help people then like with, with in a situation like this you're the best man to talk to kind of yeah well come here listen i, I never force anything down anyone's throat keith like the 12-step program i'm on is a spiritual program it's not religious the fella explained it very simply to me he said the difference between spirituality and religion, he says, is religion is for people who want to go to heaven. He says, spirituality is for people who've been to hell. And that kind of kind of rendered with me. And, it, and it's it's true in a sense, look, at, not for everybody. But I mean, for the type of people that go to my, my 12-step program. And I mean, and I always say to people that come in and go, that it's not for them, you know. I always say that every nut that walks in the door, we've got a spanner to fit and I tell you, I've seen some fucking nuts walk through the doors of, of the meetings I go to. And you look back in a few years' time and they're a completely different person, mm-hmm. you know. And I've and I've lost loads of friends. I've had mates of mine that have relapsed and that have all did. I've had friends of mine that have been murdered that went back out using. Um, so I'm not exempt. I'm not sitting here telling you. You know, please God, a day or a time will be will be twenty years clean and sober in in in, in April, April fourth, and um. But I, I'm not under any illusion at all that I'll that I'll never use again or I'll never drink it again. All I have is the day, like, you know. I just I make sure when I get up in the morning, I just say, look, no matter what happens today, as I said a while ago, I'm not picking up and I'm not using, and I just, you know, I say to me higher power, look at. I hand me will and me life over to you, even though a lot of the times I whip it back when things don't go wrong. I like to run the show myself. Um, so I have an understanding of a higher power. My higher power is my father and my sister that have passed away. Yes, I am religious and I believe in God and, and all that, but I'm not. 
you know, I'm not down in church or I'm not, you know, looking for, you know, communion or confession or anything like that. I do have a, but there had to be someone there. I mean, Keith, I was in a psychiatric hospital when I was 19 years of age and I was cut down off a window. I tried to hang myself one morning in the hospital. And um, I firmly believe that if it wasn't for the patient walking into the room at that time and going and alerting the staff that I certainly wouldn't be sitting in front of the computer tonight having this conversation with you. So something has always been there for me through all these years, through all the dark times and through all the good times as well, through, through some of the amazing stuff in my life, you know. I've been, I've been very, very fortunate. I've been very, very lucky. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm just so, I'm just so grateful. I'm grateful to be alive. I mean, life, life is for living, man. So the play, the plan is once, once you're, once we're out of level five, maybe level two, level, I don't know what the levels are, but you're hoping to get back on the road when all yeah. this is over. Yeah, I'm to get back on the road. I'm actually really want to see your play. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it's funny because I, because you, I feel like. Um, I feel like a bit of a winch bag now um, because, uh, you know, I, I wrote a play about something that happened to me that kind of was devastating for me, but it was just losing a gig that I really liked, you know, I was losing a job. And I and it was, look, I suppose between myself and yourself, like I grew up in a house where domestic abuse was run of the mill, you know? And yeah, yeah. As I think a lot of men do, a lot of people do, but we don't talk about it enough, you know, because as we said, we, we're supposed to deal with it ourselves. So when that, everything was probably gone okay for me until that that show ending, as I always try and explain, as much as I understood that that was the right thing to do for those people at the time and, and to change whatever, whatever happened with, with me, my age, the show ending, whatever, it was like the perfect storm for me. It just was like, okay, I'm, it was my wife actually said, We're, you know, you're going to need therapy to get through this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And all it was, my son was, was 10 years of age. I could see a young me in him. There was a lot going on. I could like, it just, it was a perfect storm for me and, and therapy really helped me through it. But through the therapy, I was able to tell my story and tell, talk about my childhood and talk about stuff that happened. And, um, look, <laughs> it, everything's relative, I suppose. Um, I was, you know, I was lucky in a lot of ways. Um, and same as yourself, I probably, I was, I was probably in a lot of scrapes where I was lucky to, I always felt like I had someone looking after me, you know, but, you know, ultimately everything seemed to be gone. And sometimes having a good job can crack, can, can paper plaster over the cracks. Do you know what I mean? Can just, yeah. you think that that's your reason, you know, if, oh sure, I'm on the radio, that's, that's my reason. That's my you know, I'm doing good. You just keep telling yourself I'm doing good if I'm doing, but, but underneath it all, you, you haven't really sorted your shit out, you know? So the play is just about that. I mean, the, the, the trigger was the, the show ending up, finishing up, but it kind not that I, not that everything unraveled then, but I just, going to therapy helped me figure out where I was coming from and what I really wanted. And it wasn't mm. that, you know, I, I pinned my happiness to, being successful on a radio show or something when actually yeah, my right. actually my happiness was here at home with my family and it was figuring all that out you know mm, all your eggs seem to be in the basket in 2FM like realistically but isn't it mad like what I talked about the disasters in my life has turned around into different stuff 
and good stuff for me. So the reality of it is, Keith, that if you were still doing what you were doing in that slot in 2FM, you, you probably would have never wrote that play because as humans, we're so used to being in a comfort zone. And for you, that was your comfort zone. It was a good wage. It was a good job. It was popularity. You got to meet really nice people. Every now and again, you probably got a free T-shirt. That was great. It's the perks of the jobs. You know, it comes with it. And there's that kind of thing. You're a public figure. And come here. Yeah, it's an amazing job. I mean, I looked at your job and I haven't got a voice for radio. My voice would be probably more for selling shotguns or, you know, pickaxe handles or something like that. I'd listen to you. Oh, well, I, I would listen to your radio show. <laughs> Um, I, I just, yeah, I, I do listen, you know, to the likes of yourself and, you know, and, and, and of late, I think I'm having a bit of a midlife crisis. I'm starting to listen to Radio 1. And um, I like Ray now, I have to say. Uh, Ray, Ray is really good. But, I mean, it is. It's, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great thing. But as I said, coming back, come here, we, we like to be in the comfort zone. We like, you know, we don't like change a lot of the times. We don't like, you know for people to knock, you know, you, you find when you're juggling three balls very, very comfortably, you don't like someone to throw you another one. And I mean, it's all happened for a reason, definitely. And I firmly believe, and I'm not, I'm not just saying it, that it's just the beginning of something different, something excitement and something really new for you, Keith. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think you're going to thrive in it. I really, really do. You know, it, it, come here. It all works out in the end. You look back this time next year, you know, the 12th of, of March, and you'll say, you know what? Jesus Christ, look at the changes that's had to happen. And I know sometimes you think into your head and you get into that self-doubt and, you know, that self-pity. And we, and, we, and we do it. I do it. I still do it to this day. But you know what? It all works out in the end, Keith. Mm. It definitely all works out in the end. I mean, it's funny even because I, st- I stopped drinking about a year ago and that was just as a con- I think I don't know what it was. It was because of whatever work I was doing on myself. I just... I just didn't want it anymore. I didn't, I didn't feel like I needed it. I didn't need the medication. I was self-medicating with, yeah. drink, with drink at the weekend. So Friday, Saturday, drink, you know, maybe Sunday, you know, weddings, all day drinking, holidays, all day drink, you know. Yeah, of course, like, all built around it, yeah. But it was whenever I got a break, I'd drink because I needed to feel better and I needed to medicate. And that's, it was just self-medication. And it just... Mm. Once I started working on myself, going to therapy, figuring stuff out, I was writing stuff. I was doing, you know, I was doing things that I liked. I was doing things with my hands. I was drawing. I was writing. I was creating. I just stopped. I just stopped wanting the drink. You know, it's weird. It was a strange, a strange phenomenon that I still look at and I'm, and I can't quite figure out. You know, and and as I said, it's not that I. It's like anybody, you know, you, you look for these words like was I an alcoholic? Was I dependent? Was I, you know, was I an addict? Maybe it was, you know. It was what it was, and then it, it was just. It, it's interesting to me that I just knocked it on the head, just out of the. It's seemingly out of the blue, you know. But and did you did you have a drink on Christmas? No, no. It was my first Christmas. Wow. It was my first Christmas not drinking since I was probably seven, sixteen or something. Wow. Yeah. That, that's, well, that that's a big that's a big uh, milestone to get through. Christmas, I used to tell guys that used to get clean, you know, they used to go, oh, Christmas, Christmas. I used to say to them, are you a talkie? And they used to go, no. I'd say, well, then you don't have anything to worry about. 
So it's the only people that talkies need to worry at Christmas. It says it's only another day. It's 24 hours. But I mean, you're coming from the background and I'm coming from the background. You know, a family, it's drink. It's all the festive season is built all. I mean, all the, all the special occasions and all our lives are built around drink. Mm. You know, christenings, weddings, funerals, confirmations, communions, anniversaries, Mother's Day, Father's Day, any. Come here, and I mean, every day is international, something or fucking other day, and anyway, which will give you an excuse to have a drink if you want one, like you know. So, I don't know, I just find for me, um, it's great just waking up in the morning or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm an early riser, I'm in bed either way on the weekend at eight o'clock, like you know, half seven. You know, and I used to listen to you guys down the breakfast show, and I'd be going, fucking hell, because I remember talking to Dermot Whelan, it'd be a really good mate of mine. And I remember when Damien used to do stand-up and it was a really good stand-up that he just couldn't do it. He says, I couldn't do the early mornings and I couldn't do the stand-up. He said, mm. I was killing. He yeah. said, I was going home that day after work. He says, and I was getting into bed for three or four hours and it was robbing him completely of his family time. And there you go now. Look at this, Damien, who's, you know, big into, you know, meditation and has done his own book. And it's from other stuff that's happened in his life to, to, to where he is. And he'd be kind of, Someone that I'd aspire to and kind of look at and go, yeah, you know what? Any like, come here, anything is possible. Keith, we get what we settle for in life. What are you willing to settle for? Like, mm. do you know what, what I'm saying? Like, yeah, what do you want and what are you going to sacrifice? Yeah, the person, the only person that's stopping you or me getting what we want in life is is is, is yourself or me, you know. But I you, you, you can put on. But to bring it back, then it is that of just I mean, the thing that I want people to listen to this and listen to my podcast and know that the first step to getting what you want is asking somebody to help you and finding the right person that will be able to help you and, and being vulnerable and saying, I just need a bit of help here. And it's that, yeah. that little bit of help will get you to the next bit of help until you get to the point where you don't need as much help and you can start helping other people. And it's through helping other people and reaching. That's like, that's the cycle. Yeah. Like, but it listen, it's like, it's like, listen, it's it's just one person helping another without parallel. That's all it is. Yeah. And I come here, Keith, that, and that, that stands for anything in life. I mean, if I want to learn to play guitar, I need to ask someone to help me to play that guitar. I'm not going to pick up the, car, the guitar and be bleeding, you know, Jimi Hendrix. Like, it's, it's not going to work out. Mm. So, I mean, it applies to everything. But, I mean, especially if you're suffering with mental health issues or you're thinking you know, that, you know, something is wrong in your life and you get into that dark place, it's all right just to tap someone on the shoulder and go, listen, I'm struggling a bit here. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you, you can, I mean, you can't drown gracefully. Like, I mean, if you pass by a guy in a boat who's drowning and you've got a boat full of life jackets and he's telling you, oh, no, I'm grandly, because we all do that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Do you, do you know, no, this is just the way I swim, like, do you know what I mean? Like, everyone, uh, like, I mean, how many times have you, how many times have you walked through Newbridge and someone say, yeah, Keith, they are house things, and you go, super, everything is fine, like, mm. but realistically, if you were to stop and tell them what was going on, maybe they'd have booked you into therapy quicker than you'd have booked yourself in. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? But we have this thing, like you said, that's instilled in us from when we're kids to, you know, don't tell anybody anything's wrong. Always tell everyone that you're doing all right. You know, don't don't be uh, don't be a problem to anybody. You know, you're grand. Everything is you're, you're going to be grand. You know, mm. and it's just it's 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 embedded in you, like. But yeah, it's it's okay. It's okay to say to someone, look, I'm I'm struggling. I'm 
I'm, I'm, I'm finding it tough. Like I need, I need a bit of a dig out because it's them few words that are the matter realistically of life and fucking dead Keith. Yeah. And be happy oh. to admit to yourself what you really want from life and don't be afraid to express that as well because that's the other thing it's, we're we're afraid to reach for the thing that we really want you know and that's another another thing as well i think it's a milestone and a big achievement in yourself if you ask someone for help yeah that you've really got to tap yourself on the back and say Do you know what i'm out to do and one of the best things i've probably ever done in my life we saying to someone i need i, I need to dig out I'm, yeah. I'm struggling yeah just do that little thing you know uh, and come here we all struggle but some of the struggles, some people's struggles are bigger than others. Well, actually, um, Tommy Tiernan put it really well. And and and, and I sort of, I, I changed it slightly, but he was, he was saying that life is, life is, life is a struggle, right? But things like the 12 step program, meditation, mindfulness, friends, gratitude, mm. helping others. They're the things that help you actually enjoy the struggle. Yes. So it can be a hard struggle. It's always going to be a struggle, but it's about trying to ride the struggle and enjoy the struggle. And those are the tools that are available to help you enjoy the struggle. I think that's my layman's way of looking at well, it. Well, Keith, we done, myself, John Killeary, who you know, um, and Tommy Tiernan went in before Tommy's new series started on his chat show. We went in and done the chat show in Mountjoy Prison. I've got a lot of friends in there and Tommy said he'd love to do a version of the show in there obviously not filmed or not recorded because of you know the audience members are all prisoners and the prison officers but what we didn't tell Tommy obviously he doesn't know who the, the guests are so the first guy he had on was a goalkeeper who played for Ipswich under um, Roy Kane he plays for Bowes this guy lovely lovely fella then he had an author on who was a woman who wrote a book kind of on um, self-acceptance and kind of life coaching and mindfulness. And, and the, she's a lovely woman, an American woman. And the third guy who was on, who Tommy didn't know who he was, was actually a guy who was doing a life sentence in Mountjoy Prison. So unbeknown to Tommy, Tommy is sitting there and it, it's crazy. I, I love Tommy. Tommy has been very good to me through, throughout my comedy career. And, uh, it's crazy sitting watching him, and, and even when he's on the TV doing it, that it's like he's mentally trying to put a jigsaw puzzle together of who this person is. So it eventually came out that this guy was doing a life sentence for taking another man's life, and Tommy asked him the question. He says, "He says, uh, can you be happy in here? Can you be happy in prison?" And he told Tommy, he says to Tommy, "Listen, I have been happier." in behind these walls than I ever was outside these walls. He says, happiness is just a state of mind. He says, I was always in a position with the people that I was with who were into crime and who were into no good. He says that, you know, it was all negativity and it was all drama and it was, you know, it, every day was just a, a different day with, with people being harmed and people been doing, and it, and it cost him, it cost him is. He's going to do probably about 20 years, but it was just great to hear him say that he was, you know, he was a lot more freer. He was very, very sorry. And he was very remorseful that he took another man's life. And, and the circumstances of his events had landed him up in a prison, been happier than he ever was on the outside. Like, you know, Tommy said it was one of the best interviews that he ever done. 
And, and it was amazing just listening to this fella, you know, burdening his soul and just opening himself up and pulling back his ribcage and, and, and talking about the circumstances that had ended him up in behind the walls of prison, like, you know. Tommy has a Tommy has a gift for that, doesn't he? Um, well, look, it's it's Friday night. It's we, we've been talking for over an hour. I could talk, I could keep talking to you forever, but I'm very I'm very glad that you gave me your time, and uh, it was great no to chat chat to you again. No um, problem, man. Really, I'm looking forward to seeing the play. So I'll be keeping an eye out. And voice and voice of Versa. We'll have to. Do yeah, it. I'm gonna come here. Listen, I'm, go, I'm, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go and see yours and come here. When all the madness dies down, we'll we'll get a coffee or a bit of lunch or something like that. And we'll catch up properly. That'll be great. That'll be great. Listen, man, really appreciate you sharing your story and uh, mind yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Not a problem. Stay in touch, man. Yeah. Thanks. See you later. Guys. There he is, the man, the one, the, the the man, the myth, the legend, Willie Willow White. Thanks so much, Willie. I feel like he he might have a lot more stories to tell me, and uh, it's hard. I mean, obviously, podcast is much better because it's long form. You know, you're not under pressure like the radio. But um, there's there's so many moments where you want to interrupt and say, "Tell me more about that." But a lot of the time, I just wanted to let him let him chat and tell the story, and uh, he did he did very well. But yeah, what a guy. Um, yeah, thanks thanks for sharing your story, Willa. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll be in touch. We'll keep in touch this time. Um, yeah, that's it really. I just have one more thing I want to mention. There's a skate park in Wexford called Reckless. It's pretty much the only. There is one in Sligo, but it's a bit smaller, and it's not. The one in 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 Wexford, it's gory Wexford. It's called Reckless. It's uh, it's brilliant. It's big. Uh, it's big enough for BMXs, BM, big enough for skaters, big enough for scooter riders. It's got a nice half pipe in there. It's got uh, lovely street sections, um, plenty of ramps, plenty of areas. Just nice and big. It's got a skate shop in there. The guy is hoping to o- open a, a, a sort of a audio visual type school for kids, teaching them how to DJ. Um, there's just there's lots of things going on there anyway because it it was fine ticking away nicely and he had lots of ambition lots of like he has the place immaculate and uh, really looks after the place well um he, he was tipping along and then COVID hit and closed down and just couldn't keep up with the bills and is in danger now of closing down We're trying to raise 50 grand um so if you go to the Rectus website there should be a link there to donate to the GoFundMe if you follow me on Instagram um, I'll try and put up the link actually in the description of this podcast if not follow me on Instagram and I'll put up the GoFundMe link and we'll try and stop this uh, brilliant brilliant skate park from closing down the thing about like scooter riding is huge in this country it's just like everywhere you look there's a kid in a scooter but like these kids they learn they learn tricks and they've got skills and they've got when you see them in the skate park the back flips the front flips the throwing the scooters over their heads like they're proper athletes they train hard they work hard um i'm a little bit biased because my son does it but i see i see how hard he works out and how much he does how much he loves it and believe it or not scooter riding is up for 
being in up for decision to be included in the uh, Olympics, not this Olympics, obviously not. I think twenty twenty four. If not 2024, 2028. So some of the scooter riders you see around the place could be representing Ireland in the Olympics. The skaters already are in 2020, and we'll have Irish skaters in the Olympics in 2024. BMXers, we have some brilliant BMXers in this country, and this is the only facility for them. If you go up to Belfast, there's a huge uh, indoor skate park in Belfast. Um, just outside, it's kind of near Bangor. Sim banger, and uh, but that's a lot. A lot of that is paid for uh, by the council down here. You get nothing. That's why there's any of the indoor skate parks they did open just closed down because it's a very difficult thing to keep going. They're, you know, it's very hard to get money first. Very hard to get funding for it. Anyway, I'll share the link, and if you if you can spare a few quid, please do. That's it for me. I hope you're having a good day wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Um. Keep the head down and keep pedalling. And try that out as an outro. What about that? Let me know what you think. Okay? Good luck. Good night. Gotta go. Gotta put up the other. I've got a chat with my friend Mike to put up. So, uh, gotta do, gotta do, gotta do, gotta do, do that, down. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 